Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, how regional planners try to make Dangerous Valley intersections safer. And we'll have the next edition of our series Staying Power with a longtime Democratic politico in a red state. But first, emergency departments were often overwhelmed during the pandemic. As the case numbers of COVID-19 surged in our community, more people would crowd ERs seeking care. But now One Valley Emergency Medicine doctor says she's never seen her department so busy. We are in the height of respiratory virus season, but she says there's more leading to the uptick than that. Dr. Kara Guerin is with Valleywise Health, Valleywise Health Hospital and Uh, She's on the line now to tell us more. Good morning, Dr. Guerin. Good morning, Lauren. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So begin with what you're seeing right now. You're seeing, you know, you say the busiest it's ever been in the emergency department there. Yeah, by what I mean is we have more patients in the emergency department than I've ever seen. I've been at Valley Wise for 13 years and uh, for that time have practiced almost exclusively at Valley Wise. So that's where my experience comes from. But the sheer quantity of patients in the emergency department is nothing I've ever seen before. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, and I'm happy to go into that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, busier than you saw during the pandemic is quite something. I mean, tell us what could be behind this. Obviously, respiratory virus season is, is something. Is that contributing? Absolutely. It is definitely contributing. There's a lot and lot of influenza A going around. There's some COVID going around. And um, although not nearly as much of RSV going around, there is still some of that as well. But it's much more multifactorial than that. Um, A a lot of the patients coming in with respiratory illnesses right now are discharged. Mm -hmm. In comparison, all of this in comparison to COVID, when we were at the height of COVID, there were a large number of patients, but the big difference was the patients we had were much sicker. Mm. I wouldn't say that that's what we're say, seeing right now. I think it's more the sheer quantity of patients that we're seeing. So you're right, uh, certainly respiratory illnesses, but part of our struggles at Valleywise specifically, and I can't speak to other hospitals, but I know other hospitals experience this as well in the Valley, is boarding of patients in the emergency department. Right. And what, what I mean, mean by exactly? that... Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. But what I mean by that, it's it's kind of a holding pattern. So we've determined a patient needs to come into the hospital. They need to be admitted to the hospital, but there is simply not an inpatient bed for them. Or they need to go to another facility for whatever reason, whether it's specialty care or that's where their care has been ha- has occurred in the past and they need that specific doctor or um, care. So they need to be transferred to another facility. And rather than receiving inpatient care in the appropriate location, they are instead in the emergency department. Mm. And this has been a problem for many, many years. Uh, We are just very lucky at Valley Wise that it has not been as bad of a problem until it is now. Right. I'll give you an example. Uh, The other day, we technically have um, 31 or 32 areas that are curtained off with stretchers. And we had more than that, more like 33 or 34 patients awaiting inpatient beds. Wow. So this is patients laying on gurneys, basically in corridors and hallways, things like that? Yeah. So these are patients 
that are in a specific bed, uh, we try and make people who are boarding in the emergency department as comfortable as possible. Mm -hmm. They are getting the care they need as an inpatient, but they are physically in the emergency department. So we put them in hospital beds and they are getting the routine medications and they're getting the same treatment they would receive in an inpatient bed, but physically in the emergency department. And if you have all these people waiting that really limits where you can see emergency department patients. Yeah. So we're seeing patients in the hallway. We're mm. seeing patients in chairs. Patients who are uncomfortable and here for emergency care are getting a lot of their care in chairs because we simply do not have a lot of room. Wow. So, I mean, what are the outcomes like for patients then? I can't imagine it's, it's better. I mean, is this a, a problem when it comes to patient care? Yes, it's a huge problem for patient care. Um, studies are mixed, but we do believe that there is at least an association between increased short-term mortality and boarding in the emergency department. There are so many factors that go into that. Um, there's at least an association, and many studies show that uh, there's probably stronger than just an association. Mm. And in terms of patient care, you know, I... Um, Unfortunately, like many things, you have to be flexible. So I was sitting in an area where I normally don't sit in order to try and help patient care the other day. And I overheard a patient complain that it took them three hours to get Tylenol. Mm -hmm. And I very much empathize with that patient. But I also got very frustrated at that mm -hmm. statement because, I'm, you know, we are trying the best we can. But this is this is a broken system. Not our healthcare system, like not valley-wise. The entire system is broken. This is a nationwide problem that is multifactorial. Um, our American College of Emergency Medicine Physicians group, which is the national group, had a meeting in September of 2023 and came up with a list of causes or, or contributing factors and what could be done about it. So we are just a microcosm of the big problem. Hmm. Talk a little bit about the root of that problem in the healthcare system in general. Like what's causing the backup? Is this a ripple effect? Yes, absolutely. It is a ripple effect. There's a lot of them that I don't understand as a physician, you know, um, in terms of payment, uh, transparency, you get paid for certain things, but not other certain things. So there's a lot of that that I don't understand, but I can tell you on a kind of a, what has been identified and that what I see on a regular basis, um, I would say are probably four big things. One is mental health. Uh, there's not a lot of outpatient resources. So people seek emergency care. Yeah. Also, as medicine has become more complicated, psychiatric patients don't just have psychiatric problems. They also have complicated medical problems mm. and our system is not built to, to be able to, to deal with that. We have lots of operational barriers getting patients uh, discharged, for instance, if they need a skilled nursing facility or a long-term care facility, and those are full or their insurance has not said that that's acceptable for them to go to, that takes time. Mm -hmm. There's a huge workforce problem. As we know, people are leaving healthcare, physicians, nurses, staff, techs, radiology techs, they're leaving healthcare in droves after COVID, during COVID and after COVID. Uh, there's a lot of, yeah. lot of reasons for that. Um, overworked, the staffing ratios are going up. The amount of violence and verbal abuse in the emergency department is something that we have never seen before. Hmm. I have multiple colleagues that are out uh, because of injuries caused by patients. Wow. Um, it's only getting worse. And social determinants of health. Um, for instance, in my microcosm yesterday, I had a patient who did not have a home. 
mm-hmm. and did not want to leave the emergency department because it was warm and wow. cozy and they were had food. Yeah. Um, and it, it was not a good feeling to say, I'm sorry, you have to leave. We need this spot for someone else. Yeah, man. What's the effect on your own work, your staff? I mean, this must be taxing. It's exhausting. It's, uh, as I mentioned, you know, just hearing someone, we're doing the best we can. And to hear someone complain is, is sad. And we, we try our best. We empathize. But it's also frustrating yeah. because we're doing the best we can. Um, the good thing is since COVID, I think systems have realized they have to be uh, aggressive about it. I know that nursing staff is getting paid more than they <clears throat> used to. Yeah. So that's great. Um, but long term, that's not a good solution. We know that there's going to be, uh, we're going to have a shortage of millions of nurses. Okay. We know that that's an issue all the way down to nursing uh, admissions mm-hmm. and nursing colleges. Unfortunately, we'll have to leave it there. That is Dr. Kara Guerin, emergency medicine doctor with Valley Wise Health joining us. Dr. Guerin, thank you so much for coming on and for your insights here. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for letting me uh, talk about what's going on. The Maricopa Association of Governments, or MAG, recently compiled its annual list of the intersections most at risk for crashes. It's been doing this since 2010. The regional planning agency analyzed more than 22,000 intersections across the region. This is a first step of several, and MAG will issue recommendations to local agencies by next summer. Many of the intersections with the most crashes were in the West Valley, including 99th Avenue and Lower Buckeye Road, 75th Avenue and McDowell, and 99th Avenue and McDowell. But my next guest says since this list is a high-level one, it doesn't really say much to her that intersections in one part of the valley have more crashes than in others. Margaret Herrera is MAG's Transportation Safety and Operations Program Manager. I spoke with her earlier and asked what kinds of things she needs to look at to determine if there's anything the intersections with a lot of crashes have in common or if there's anything unique about them. Sure. So a lot of times what we'll do is take a look at, um, for instance, if there's an area with heavy truck traffic, right, or if you have an area that's high commercial other areas that are a mixed use of commercial, um, both single family and multifamily residential, um, along with services and community centers like parks or churches, right? So um, there's several things that we look at that we, um, we do see some trends, um, especially in the areas that I just described to you with those mixed uses where we might see a lot of pedestrian and bicycle crashes. Um, you might also see a trend in left turn crashes, um, and those are in some areas where you have um, opposing left turn lanes that are lined up directly in front of each other, and you can't see around, um, you know, the through traffic to to accurately judge a gap. Yeah. Um, so you might see some trends um, as far as that's concerned. Would I be right to assume that the speed in, in these areas and maybe even the types of vehicles you mentioned, like, are they residential? Are they, you know, industrial? Are they commercial? Like that kind of affects what kinds of vehicles are, are on the roads there too, right? Absolutely. So you have an area that's high industrial. You're going to have a lot of freight, right? You're going to have a lot of truck traffic. Um, so so that is, that is um, a good point that you make. 
So you mentioned that this is something that you have done every year for a while now. Do you see the same intersections popping up year after year? Um, that's a really good question. We have seen over the years some movement from, um, you know, some corridors will be on the list for several years and then uh, and then they'll reduce and then other corridors will will prop up. We, we take a look at the previous year's list to see what that movement is. Uh, we've had some intersections that were, you know, in the top five um, go down to 96, hmm. right? Um, and you know, we have um, several intersections that, um, you know, may stay in the top 100, but they might move. They might move up. They might move down. Yeah. Well, so is there anything that you can learn, for example, from, a, you know, an intersection that might have been in the top 10 or the top 20 that has gone down significantly? Can you take anything that you have learned and done in that intersection and apply it to another one that maybe has cropped up to the top, you know, 10 or 15? Yeah, and that's another really good question. Um, those are things that we always look out for as well um, to see, you know, if if something's performing well, how can we duplicate that up elsewhere, right? Um, we did have an intersection that was um, ranked in the top five um, about six years ago, I want to say, um, and they, uh, the local agency had done some, um, had applied for funding at MAG uh, through their, through our roadway safety program and did some um, left turn improvements. And we did see that one drop out of the top 100 this year. So um, looking at those specific improvements that they made, um, we can definitely screen the rest of um, the intersections in the region to see if, you know, there's places where we can duplicate that. So that, that again, is, is something that we continually do. Right. Well, I, I assume that there are only so many things that you can do, right? Like you have a, a toolbox of options given all the factors you mentioned earlier about, you know, some of the, the attributes of a particular intersection. But I would think that there are some things that like maybe aren't really doable in terms of changing infrastructure or things like that. So is it like how broad or narrow is the universe of, of potential fixes that you can apply to an intersection? Right. And, and, and again, I can tell you that um, we try to broaden our toolkit as much as possible. Think of it more in terms of um, not how many tools, but what tools work the best, right? We try to focus on the things that will um, provide or have, you know, documented um, with the highest potential for um, improved safety. But I can tell you that we, we do provide recommendations to the local agencies um, that go from anywhere from education programs for the area that they might want to implement, you know, increased uh, engagement by um, police officers, infrastructure, you know, the things that are really hard to do um, are, you know, as it relates to speed. Yeah. Um, but we we try to make sure that the recommendations that we put in there are going to be the ones that um, will give them the biggest bang for their buck, um, regardless really of the cost. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, you know we need to kind of wrap our our minds around is that to make some real safety improvements, you know, we're going to have to spend some money to do it. Well, so understanding that you know each intersection is to an extent unique. 
over the years, are there particular recommendations or particular solutions that you have found generally are fairly successful? Yes. Um, and I uh, spoke about this a little bit earlier, but the, you know, making the improvements to the left turn pockets mm-hmm. uh, where you're giving the drivers uh, more, a better view around the opposing left turn to be able to judge that gap. Those have been very successful. The flashing yellow arrows have been successful. Um, you know, things like we talked about the range earlier of different um improvements that you can make. Um, You probably have seen some traffic signals that have a yellow retroreflective border on them. Um, That can really improve the sight of the, you know, red, yellow, green if the sun is at your back, right? So if you're getting some glare off of the sun, um, those go a long way in improving the sight of the actual traffic signal itself. So There's a lot of things that have been successful, and they range from some of the larger um, infrastructure improvements all the way down to even signal timing, right? Uh, We might make recommendations to extend the green time or provide um, pedestrian priority, right, in areas where we have a lot of, like light rail, right, where we Mm -hmm. have a lot of pedestrian crossings. Um, So things like that have, have been successful, All right. That is Margaret Herrera, Transportation Safety and Operations Program Manager for the Maricopa Association of Governments. Margaret, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, a New York stand-up comedian is bringing his act to Chandler. I was in the Navy, and I was that guy, the sailor everybody looked for. They're like, where's the Lorbay? I want to get the Lorbay over here because he's funny. We'll hear how he went from a Navy ship to the stand-up stage. But first, it is time for the next edition of our series, Staying Power. A few years ago on the show, we brought you a series of exit interviews with people who made a big impact here in the Valley of the Sun and then left. Well, this year, we're taking a look at the people on the other side of that spectrum, the people who stayed. I spent the last seven weeks trying to figure out how to never come back to Phoenix. (laughs) And then the second I get back, I'm just like, oh, man, this place. You know, you just feel it. It, like, grabs you. And you're like, okay. It all brought me back to Phoenix, Hmm. whether I liked it or not. Think about leaving. No. It felt like the greatest challenge Whatever you're running to, we should be building that Mm. here. There's something about this place that, for us, is just magical. It's not like any place else. Today, meet longtime Arizona Democratic political operative Krista Severns. She grew up in Las Vegas and thought she wanted to get as far away from it as possible. But Phoenix is as far away as she ended up. I was 23. I thought I knew everything. (laughs) And I'm like, what a cow town. You can't even get a latte in Phoenix, Arizona. (laughs) It was 1987 when Phoenix had about three million fewer people living here. But she got a temporary job offer working on former Arizona Governor Bruce Babbitt's presidential campaign in the Valley. So she took it. 
you know, it's a short time. It's going to be like nine months. Why not? It'll be an adventure. And it's a presidential campaign. How fun could that be? Mm -hmm. So I moved here and I immediately felt at home. It was like Las Vegas, she said, but prettier. I liked it. I liked it sort of on a temporary level. This is where I'm going to learn new stuff. And then that's going to catapult me into, you know, sophistication somewhere else. The big time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is a common theme in these staying power interviews. And for Severns, it never happened, even though she thought it would. I kept thinking I was going to leave, but then I, I got good jobs. I got interesting jobs. I was Bruce Babbitt's assistant for a couple of years after he had run for president, before he became Department of Interior secretary. So I met really interesting people. I got to talk to interesting reporters all over the world. I got to convince, you know, an, an interpreter who had just graduated from Johns Hopkins to you know go down to Brazil with Bruce Babbitt and his, his wife. I mean, it was it was interesting stuff. After all of that, she thought for sure she'd be out of here. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, I actually have roots. I'd moved like four times after I graduated from high school. And as we all know, moving is really lonely. Mm. When you don't know a city, when you don't know a, the streets, it's very frustrating. And so I'm like, I'm kind of here. And mm. now I have friends. <laughs> but it wasn't all sunshine and cactuses. But then, you know, I had that whole, it's, it's Phoenix, Always an inferiority complex. It was right? an inferiority <laughs> complex for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Back then, she said Phoenix looked very different. It was pretty. It was, you know, hot in the summer. There weren't as many people and there were no freeways. Mm. So it took you forever to go anywhere. And we thought that was okay. Um, <laughs> I think you know, Bell Road was, um, you know, was was dirt. And, you know, people that, that kind of lived out of Bell and and. Third Street or Fifth Street, I thought, you know, pack a lunch. That's forever. <laughs> the development she's watched over the ensuing decades made it a lot easier to stay. Now you have all these little businesses. You have lots of restaurants. Mm -hmm. With all of the apartments that have come to the central um, core, the density has brought really exciting new things that you can't get unless you have enough people to support it. Mm. Downtown has restaurants now. I mean, when I moved here, it was before Banquin Ballpark even. Back then, you just you had nothing downtown. You just had – really, you, you had sagebrush. So you spent some time, and I'm sure a lot of time downtown, because you were working in Arizona politics, right? Like mm -hmm. and you've been working in Democratic politics in Arizona for yeah. decades. Yeah. What kind of glutton for punishment are you doing I that and staying here? I am an optimist. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I remember – just grabbing a piece of pizza with Babbitt one day after the first MLK vote mm -hmm. and the first Martin Luther King vote lost. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, you know, you can make a bigger difference in a goofy state than you can in one that's all right. Interesting. So and that really stuck with me. It's like, OK, well, yeah. And I, I think that was one of the really exciting things about this town is that you could just come into it and do something to make a difference. Hmm. You didn't have to be part of a certain family. You didn't have to go to a certain grade school or high school. People were always coming here. And that's, I think, one of the reasons I stayed in politics is that that's where you met really you know, interesting people that, were, that were, wanted to make a difference or a change. Yeah. Do you feel like you were able to make a difference? Like, did you have your impact? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I ran a community college bond back in 94. And I look at all of the buildings that are up now and all the things that they built from that, you know, that was over $500 million, which, which was a lot. Yeah. We got rid of some congressional candidates that really weren't reflecting a 
the current feelings in Phoenix? I mean, we talk about Arizona being a purple state, and Phoenix has been blue and purple for, gosh, for at least 30 years. Mm -hmm. So if, if you look at democratic politics, within certain regions, it's always been democratic. But you have to, you've got to really figure out what it is you want to do to make a difference, not just because that's what one party or another is suggesting. So Phoenix is at this moment, right, where we are, we have grown massively. We have become sort of the cool place that maybe you wanted it to be when you first came here, right? Like Mm -hmm. that aspirational city, like I'm going to move to this city or that Mm -hmm. city. Now Phoenix is kind of one of those cities. Is it a little bit frustrating, though? Is this, you still feel like you have a conflicted relationship with this city? I do. Um, but then I, I look to the cities that I used to feel were the places that I wanted to be or that I wanted to exist in, like Seattle yeah. and Portland. I mean, back in the 90s, anyone in in local politics thought that Portland, like, basically walked on water. Yeah. You know, it's like, let's go there and look at their, their system of transportation. It's so fabulous. and um, And now, you know... You don't want to go to Portland. So the question is, we've we've become a really mature city in a way. How do we keep from losing that? Mm-hmm. How do we how do we continue to grow and improve? So okay, so you talked about the kind of one of the themes of Phoenix, right? Which is this idea that there's a low barrier to entry here, mm-hmm. and that was one of the probably the things that it sounds like made it really attractive to you to stay. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's still true? Do you think we're losing yeah. that? Um, I do think it's true. I think our current mayor, Kate Gallego, she talks about it when she drove here in like 2003, 2004 with everything she owned in a hatchback. Mm-hmm. And 16 years later, she's mayor of Phoenix. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty cool story. Mm-hmm. And I don't see that changing partially probably because we don't have families, Democratic families or even Republican families that run that run the game here or mm-hmm. run that here. New people are always cycling in mm-hmm. as all of our residents are new too. And, you know, as they come in, they bring they bring values of, you know, they want to raise their kids. They want, a, you know, an economic place to do it. They want safe parks. They want trash that's picked up on time, you know, and Phoenix does a tremendous job of all of those things. Mm. So let's try and keep that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What do you love about this place, like on a maybe a more philosophical level? Um, I I love that there isn't sort of a judgmental sense about it, Mm. that it's like, okay, what next? What should we do? I love the fact that we have public art. I love the fact that it's a fairly safe place, that I can park my car places, um, and that I can I can do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Do you ever envision leaving? Oh, definitely in July and August. <laughs> I have been a very Phoenician answer. <laughs> I have been working on that for thirty years. How can I continue to live here but not live here in July and August and September? <laughs> And I have a – one thing that I found, one of my coping skills is that I make no life decisions in August. Hmm, I don't move. I didn't break up with any boyfriends. I didn't make any large purchases. (laughs) 
I'm just too miserable. So <laughs> I just get through the days and, you know, stay in air conditioning and try and get out of town. <laughs> so you think as Phoenix is getting bigger and growing and maybe coming into its own in its own way, can it keep that sort of sense of possibility? How long does this upward trajectory last, do you think? Well, with the right leadership, with people continuing to basically be vocal and, and say what they want, I think we'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'll catch ourselves before we get to the, you know, before we become Portland. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll leave it there. That is Krista <laughs> Severns joining us. Thank you so much, Krista, for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was fun. was my conversation with longtime Arizona Politico and current communications director of the nonprofit community investor, the Phoenix IDA, Krista Severns. Stay tuned to the show for more episodes of Staying Power. And if you want to see who else made the list, head to our website, theshow.kjzz.org. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. The Navajo Nation Police Department is severely understaffed. A three-part docuseries on Max takes viewers inside the department's training academy as recruits work to police the community, in many cases, their community. Khalil Hudson is a documentary filmmaker and one of the directors of Navajo Police Class 57. I spoke with him earlier and asked what he finds so interesting about this story. Well, I was curious, um, and, and what I was most interested in actually is um, was kind of telling a story about tribal sovereignty and um, you know the the idea that um, you know tribes are autonomous entities uh, capable of you know policing themselves and, and governing themselves. I had found a story about the reopening of this uh, police training academy um, on the Navajo Nation, and I thought, you know, and and actually the former chief of police, um, Francisco, when he was brought in as a new chief of police, he he made it one of his mandates that he was going to get this um, police training training academy back up and running, um, really as kind of a, a statement on. Um, on tribal sovereignty. And so, yeah, that's that's kind of where it all started. Well, and it seems based on, you know, what you show in this docu-series that this is no ordinary police training situation. Like this is not like the kinds of training in many ways that officers in other jurisdictions get, right? Right. Well, they're, you know, it's a unique job. Um because they're so understaffed, they're forced to um, you know, patrol alone. They're oftentimes um, traveling to a call up to an hour away. Um, they're traveling on oftentimes dirt roads or or poorly maintained roads, um, going 100 miles an hour. Some of the some of the most gripping moments were were you know blasting down a dirt road wow. uh, with officers, um, and uh, it was pretty harrowing at times. Um, but so they patrol alone. They uh, they have to cover a lot of ground. Um, they had an independent 
um, report done that the police department did, and they found that they needed over 700 officers to actually do their job correctly. And they, at the time, they only had 180. They also are cut off from radio contact oftentimes. You know, uh, we would find ourselves out, you know, in a remote area um, with no radio contact, no cell service. Um, And so, you know, if you run into some trouble out there, um, you pretty much have to be self-sufficient. You're on your own. Well, how does that work then? I mean, how do you train somebody to be in those kinds of conditions where you can't radio for backup? And even if you can radio for backup, it might take a long time for that person to get there. Right. Yeah. So, you know, they really stress communication skills, right? Being able to uh, talk your way out of a situation, um, to be able to calm someone down who may be under, you know, distressed, uh, angry, so they they go through uh, you know de-escalation training and drills, and um, so that just just being able to communicate and talk you know talk through a problem, you know is is highly important. Um, they also do a pretty in-depth defensive tactics training, so hand-to-hand combat, uh, you know, and they're uh, they're trained to um, be able to take on multiple attackers at once. When I first started researching this project, I found that um, there are about twice the number of female officers on the Navajo PD um, than the national average. Um, And, you know, in talking with officers and female officers, um, what everyone told me was that, yeah, um, female officers tend to be quite, um, quite good, uh, quite effective out there because you know, that there, it's a matriarchal um, system. So women kind of have a certain status out there and there, there's a certain amount of respect. So oftentimes they'll, a, a female officer will show up and they'll be treated differently than if a male officer had arrived. So you mentioned how understaffed this department is. Are there efforts to try to recruit more officers? I mean, and if so, are those efforts having any success? Well, yes, that, they do recruitment drives um, just about once a month in, in communities, even in border communities, um, in Farmington, Gallup, Flagstaff, uh, and then on the reservation itself, um, they're constantly, I mean, there's a, there's a whole team <laughs> just devoted to uh, recruitment. What did the recruits tell you? Like, what did the, the officers and the folks that were potentially going to be officers tell you about why they were choosing to do this? Well, um, you know, for the most part, uh, it's what's in the documentary, which is that they they want to serve their community. Um, and there's there are different motivators behind that. And I think part of it is the fact that, uh, you know, especially with our three officers, the three cadets that we followed, um, Chauvin, Levi, um, Antoine Gray and Nora Allen, um, all three of them had stories from their past, right? Um, Whether it was that they experienced domestic violence um, in their family or uh, in a marriage or or they had uh, family members that were criminals. Um, Chauvin Levi, for example, talks about um, his father's side of the family who uh, has had uh, many run-ins with with the law. and, And so, you know, for all three of those cadets, I think the motivation is you know, they had experienced this thing, you know, growing up or 
you know, uh, in their younger years and they were, you know, wanted to prevent or at least help people in their situation, right? What are the thoughts among the the leadership of the Navajo Police Department in terms of having cadets, having officers who are themselves Navajo versus those who are not? Yeah, well, you know, that's the most, I think that's the most unique thing about the the police department is that, you know, I, I think somewhere around 98% of officers are, are Navajo. And so, you know, obviously having members of the community, especially, for example, Chauvin Levi, he grew up in Shiprock, he polices in Shiprock. So, you know, he, not only does he know the community, but the community knows him. And so there's a certain sort of connection, of course, that comes with that. Um, and it's not just the language. It's not just, you know, it's it's actually being familiar with a lot of the, the folks, especially the, the repeat offenders, people that they see, um, you know, once a week. <laughs> um, and and so, of course, uh, Navajo PD, you know, the chief and the, the commanders, the top brass, they're all aware that that having officers from the community is ideal, but they're desperate. You know what I mean? So, you know, having an officer from from across the country that's unfamiliar with the the territory is is better than than nothing. All right. That is Khalil Hudson, one of the directors of the three-part docuseries Navajo Police Class 57, now available to stream on Max. Khalil, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mark. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Gadiel Del Orbe takes the stage tonight in Chandler. He's a stand-up from New York whose comedy is rooted in his Dominican culture. That's right. I'm Dominican. Mom and dad, both Dominican. You know what that means? My dad left and started a new family. The worst part about Dominican men, when they leave their family, they start a family that looks exactly like the family he left behind. But Del Orbe didn't come up through the traditional stand-up route. It was in a much more modern way, through viral videos. The Navy veteran found fame making videos for BuzzFeed and told me he feels like it's his mission to represent Latinos in comedy. Here's our conversation. I was in the Navy, and I was that guy, the sailor everybody looked for. They're like, where's the Lorbe? I want to get the Lorbe over here because he's funny. So uh, <laughs> I'm the guy that shipmates got so like that we could hang out. We'll go to the mess decks. They used to call him uh, Kick the Lorbe because he's always kicking. That means that you're like <laughs> hanging out at all times. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why the Navy paid me because I ain't do nothing. But I mean, that's like a long way from comedy, right? Like, so you were in the Navy for several years, it sounds like. How did you go from that mm-hmm. to what started, it sounds like, in your in your comedy career doing sort of viral mm-hmm. videos? So in the Navy, uh, I was an aircraft director, but I was like a play around, right? And and I used to watch like a lot of stand up. I remember as a child, I, w- I would see things like Chris Rock, Bigger and Blacker. And I thought that was so cool. When I left the Navy, when I was out to see a thing, I saw Kevin Hart's um, Shaq's All-Star. And I was like, man, I could relate to this guy. And then he did Laugh at My Pain. And I was like, I saw myself in this man. And I was mm-hmm. afraid of public speaking. I said, oh, hell no. They did like a stand-up show on the ship. And they're like, oh, yeah, you should do some stand-up. You're, you're always the funny guy, the funny friend. 
And I was like, no, 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 I'm afraid of public speaking. I would never do that. Hmm. And then when I left, I was like, you know what? Let me try once. Let me just conquer my fears. Like, why not? And I, I did a comedy show and it went great. My friends were all there. Uh, they were there for supporting me. And it was so fun. It was so fun. My ex-girlfriend at the time, she was like, why don't you just try to do a video comedy video since you're going to be a comedian? I was like, might as well. <laughs> it is comedy. And uh, no, after that, uh, they were look- at BuzzFeed. They were looking for a Dominican guy. They needed like a certain personality. And I said, you know what? I am Dominican and I could be even more Dominican. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, we did a video and, and it hit and went viral. And I asked them. I remember before I left uh, the Navy, there was a friend of mine that said, whatever you do, remember this advice. And I was like, what? Hmm. He's like, people don't get what they want because they don't ask. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like you know what? That's so deep. You're right. And now that's how I live my life. Like, if I want something, I ask for it. That's a really good advice to start your career with. So tell us about Mm -hmm. that first viral moment. Like, what was the video? What did it feel like when you realized, like, a lot of people had watched it? When I joined Perolite, I just joined this team that was already making viral videos. The term viral came from BuzzFeed. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, and I'm joining this group and this team and I see BuzzFeed and they, they sit down and have meetings. They're like, you know, we had this one video that had over a million shares. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> right? <laughs> this is crazy, right? These guys are t- talking about these crazy numbers. I did the first video was things Dominicans know to be true. Mm-hmm. Over 60,000 shares uh, in two days. I was like, wow. Wow. And then the mega viral moment that I did was what's going on in Venezuela was the first mega viral video I ever did. Uh, nobody was talking about what's going on in Venezuela at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm Dominican. I don't know much about Venezuela, but I was like, I brought a friend in. He's from Venezuela. And we connected with a journalist down there. And I said, how can we create a video that will get people interested in what's going on over there, which was horrific. Mm-hmm. But the only way people will care if you trigger their emotions, but how can we make people cry? Yeah. Right. That was the intention going in. So we went in, we did the video and it was like the first video that went mega viral on our page. And it wasn't comedy. Right. Because at the end, they're people, people that are in desperate situations. Sometimes the people that mug you in Venezuela, they're not thieves. They're not bad people. It's just people that are hungry. You know, in 2008, um, Venezuela was was voted the happiest country in the world, despite the situation. So I think that the most important thing we can do is, is raise awareness. Let the whole world know. Because if everybody knows, then maybe we can make a difference. That's the most proudest video I, I ever did because it was also like activism at the same time. So that's you know? so interesting. So like your first really, really big moment had nothing to do with comedy. Like you were doing something that was almost mm. being an advocate or being a journalist in a way. Yes, exactly. It felt good to see Venezuelans cry. I, I, I tried it. I, I tested the video a couple of times. I was like, I saw some Venezuelan friends. Like, hey, come over here. I want you to see this video. I've been working yeah, on yeah. And they started crying. I'm like, hmm, that was the goal. You had a nerve. It worked. And then when we released it, boom. Wow. So talk a little bit about your act and, and what you talk about on stage and in your stand-up. Like you, I know you perform sort of in English and a mix of English and Spanish and Spanglish, this kind of thing. And you yeah. talk a lot about 
the, the Latino diaspora and sort of the differences between Dominicans and other Latinos, right? Um, do you see yourself mm-hmm. as sort of an ambassador at this point for Dominican culture, for people like you? I want to say specifically for Dominican culture, I would say all Latinidad, all Latinos. Yeah. I think uh, Latino community are, are hungry. We are missing uh we're missing that in stand-up, in comedy. Like We have Bad Bunny. We have, uh, when it comes to music, we have representation. But I think that Latinos are right now hungry to have that. We need that Latino com- comedian that brings us all together that could talk about us. Because, I, you know, I, I go up on stage. Yes, I talk about being Dominican, but I talk about more being Latino. I, I talk about the Mexican culture, what I've learned about the Mexican culture yeah. and different types of culture, you know. And so I want to say an ambassador for Dominicans. I would say ambassador for all Latinidad. Yeah. Do you feel like a, do you feel a power in that? Like, do you feel a responsibility? That's my mission. Yeah. My, that's what I know my, what my purpose is. We did some shows in, in DC. We did shows in Miami. And, and I remember sitting there and I was, for me, I was like, okay, there's going to be a whole lot of Dominicans. Mm-hmm. No, there was a lot of Puerto Ricans. There was a lot of Mexicans. Mm. There was a lot of Central Americans. I saw Salvadorians, Hondurians, Guatemalans, Peruvians. And all these different countries are hungry to be recognized. Yeah. They want. They, I remember just sitting there like, you didn't say anything about Honduras. What about Nicaragua? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know you wanted me to talk about you. Right. And, and it was just like this starvation. They want to be recognized. They want to be seen. Mm. That's so, really amazing. Like, that's, that's quite an opportunity you have to do that. Uh, it's, an, it's actually an honor. Mm. All right, we'll leave it there. That is comedian, former BuzzFeed personality, Gariel Del Orbe. He'll be at Mic Drop Mania in Chandler tonight. Gariel, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for telling us your story. I appreciate it. I'm on. Thank you for having me. All right, that'll do it for this Thursday edition of the show. Mark over there will be with you again tomorrow morning with, of course, the Friday news camp and much more. Not much to talk about in politics this week. Eh, it's kind of a slow week. <laughs> so be sure to join us for that. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We are at KJZZ The Show. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilgerf. Thanks for joining us today. Have a good one. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.